Welcome back to Authentic Influence. I'm your host, Adam Connor. Today, I'm proud to host Bob Garfield on the show. Bob is an industry legend when it comes to critiquing, advertising, and the media at large. He's written several books on the topic, and today is the host of NPR's On the Media and is a co-organizer of Purple Project for Democracy. Now, Bob might not be a CMO, but he's one of the most trusted voices in our industry on this topic. And through this episode, you're going to learn, one, about his history in the critique of advertising and media, what he's seeing today as the evolution of the relationship era of marketing. You'll hear a few funny stories about some notable advertising campaigns that he recalls. And finally, we'll talk about what he's doing now with Purple, which he aims to make one of the biggest and most expansive marketing and media campaigns in history. So tune in for that. So strap in, buckle up, do whatever you have to do. This is our conversation with Bob Garfield. Folks, I'm here today with Bob Garfield. Now, Bob has spent uh, 25 years as a a critic of advertising, the past 20 years specifically as a critic of the media. And now uh, the self-proclaimed Mr. Finding Fault with Others is now on the precipice of undertaking one of the largest and most expansive campaigns in history. It's called Purple. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first, uh, Bob, great to have you. How are you doing? Uh, swell, Adam. Thanks for uh, doing this. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show. want to dive, of course, into everything uh, that Purple uh, is going to bring to us a little bit later this year. Uh, but I'd love to just start a little bit about your background. Obviously, gave that intro there. Uh, it's a very expansive time window. I want to learn a little bit more about what you've been up to in those 25 and 20 years. Well, it's uh, been a busy time. First of all, I'm the, like the oldest living American, so i I've been around for a while, uh, done a lot of things, a very eclectic resume. And, you know, one of the oddest bullet points in the resume is 25 years as an advertising critic for Advertising Age magazine, uh, something that, you know, in a fairly narrow slice of of human existence made me very prominent uh, kind of loathed, feared, maybe respected, I really don't know, but uh, people paid close attention to what I had to say about whatever ad I was reviewing uh, in any given week. And so uh, nowadays, of course, uh, with that in mind, you've taken all that knowledge and you're going to be putting it together into this uh, very expansive campaign that we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But I want to start with that experience of uh, the advertising commentary and critique in general, um, specifically those 25 years and uh, an ad review closed in the early 2010s. And since then, uh, we've seen influencers on the rise. We've seen uh, different ways of, of producing UGC on the rise. And now that having been sort of after those dedicated years of critiquing the ads, I want to get your thoughts on how uh, how it's made the way that you perceive advertising and campaigns different, or has it? Oh, it absolutely has, because the whole world has changed. The sands have shifted uh, beneath our feet just in the biggest, most tectonic way ever. Um, I um, I got out of the business of criticizing individual ads, mostly TV commercials, but not exclusively, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I was already writing at that time a series of articles which eventually became the book The Chaos Scenario, where I was predicting the complete collapse of the media and advertising economies and uh, the the growing irrelevance of paid advertising um, 
as a way to reach consumers. Uh, it, it wasn't clear to me at the time what was coming next, but it was very clear that the the status quo was unsustainable. And uh, so at some point it became a, a bit hypocritical for me to make a living every week uh, <laughs> uh, engaged in, in, in paying very close attention to documents, ads, that I have been loudly proclaiming were borderline irrelevant. So there was the hypocrisy thing. There was also the collapse of the media uh, uh, business model and advertising age, I could see very clearly was very soon not going to be in the position of being able to have a full-time ad critic on its staff. Uh, at its height, it had about 75 editorial employees. I think as we speak now, it's down to about five. So uh, I, I kind of saw that coming too. I, I wrote a book about it. And so I knew that uh, to get while well, the getting was good. And I just retooled my career. And uh, I did it by just shifting over to media uh, media criticism, which is, you know, is a, <laughs> is a bit fraught too, business model wise, but um, it's a living. Well, if I could turn the, the clocks back just a few years then and, and, and pick your brain on what you've seen recently, I, I want to know about some, or maybe an advertising campaign that is sort of uh, the top of your list and what, you, what you've loved to watch and then what, and one, and I want to know one that, that you haven't, because I know you got to have that in you. I, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but Adam, I don't, I don't see much media advertising except what i encounter on the web uh, i i don't watch broadcast I almost never watch broadcast tv except for live sports um, i am a streamy <laughs> and uh, i live i live my uh, entertainment life on netflix and so i don't have any there's nothing that sticks i mean either as egregious or as transcendent because I just don't see much. Um, I mean, every now and then I'll see an ad online that makes me either laugh or go, yeah, I, I, I guess they did a good job there. Um, I must say that while I was practicing advertising criticism, my first consideration was never whether it, whether the spot was entertaining. It was whether it was going to sell goods and services for the advertiser uh, without, uh, you know, without some ethical transgression along the way. And then, then I got to talking about the everything else. But I, I walked the walk of the talk that I talked. I am just kind of, I'm detached from media advertising. Well, I, I, that is a surprising take. And I suppose the way in which people are consuming media today has certainly changed. And of course, with a shift from, from broadcast to being streamies, as, as, as you yourself put it, means that you see inevitably much, much less. And uh, it's actually really good segue into something that it was in ad age. And it was talking about the transition to the relationship era, where ads, of course, were focused on generating sales. And I would assume that that's always going to be a target for any advertiser, but also in specifically building a relationship, uh, one that's authentic, building trust, 
that's been interesting to perceive in this new world of the different types of content which are available, the different mediums into which you can publish. And so I, I want to know from you, especially since it's been changing so much in the past six or seven years, how that is evolving that maybe initial framework of what the relationship era was defined as early on. Well, it's evolving. I mean, I... I kind of called that one too. I mean, I, I certainly didn't know what the technology was going to was going to emerge that would be the medium for the relationship era. But very, very clearly, the basic principles of what I was talking about ten some years ago uh, have have uh, materialized. Uh, actually, I got lost in the middle of my own sentence, so it may or may not have scanned. But um, the um, the premise was that for the whole history of advertising, we lived in a world of marketers trying to influence and persuade consumers uh, by crafting a message, telling them what their brands uh, meant. And some of the greatest advertising of all times uh, was it just enormously successful on that. Diamonds are forever the Marlboro Cowboy, uh, the real thing, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, implicitly the the phony competitor, uh, and um, the, the the Volkswagen campaign, and just do it. They through, uh, and I'll add another one: uh, the uh, the Friendly Skies. Uh, they were examples of how in the in the good old days, the advertisers were able to dictate their, their meaning. And, uh, <laughs> well, there, those days are over because uh, now we, we live in a world of near total transparency of what's going on inside of corporations. Everything they do right, everything they do wrong, ways their products uh, disappoint, way their, ways their products cause harm, way their ways their corporate practices uh, are murky, all of it. And the, you know, the example I, I just love to trot out is United because they spent, um, I don't know, 25, 30 years, and I think at last count 36 fucktillion dollars <laughs> telling us that their skies were friendly. And they, you know, they spent a fortune on Rhapsody in Blue and which was just a perfect selection back when advertising mattered and now is just, um, uh, it, it's borderline silly. And the reason it's borderline silly is because every single day we are treated to some video on our Facebook feeds of either dead dogs tumbling out of the overhead or people being dragged down the aisles by uh, by flight attendants and cops or, uh, you know, just sort of other <laughs> mid-air atrocities that com completely belie the, the very disingenuous Friendly Skies claim. And, you know, one of the greatest was a song by Dave Carroll, who, was, who fronted a Canadian band, and they had a bad experience with their checked package. And he wrote a song uh, called United Breaks Guitars that got like 20 million views. It's hilarious. It's a whole music video, actually. Uh, 20 million views and undid God knows what kind of spend uh, behind 
the friendly skies. And that's it. I mean, so we are past the ability to dictate a message. What, what, what consumers want is, uh, is to be part of a brand, to trust a brand, to feel, um, uh, to feel that the brand represents them or at least their values uh, uh, and their desires. And when there's a conflict between what you think about yourself and what the brand is clearly doing out there in the world, that creates cognitive dissonance. And if if it belies the advertising message, that makes it worse. So uh, brands have had to learn through various mechanisms to enlist the group formerly known as the audience in the creation, the distribution, uh, and the, uh, and, uh, you know, I would say the adjudication of the brand's image. Well, I've certainly been aware of all sorts of, I mean, UGC at, at its core, but just incredibly viral content that you're right, can completely belie uh, an organization's message, their, their, meaning. I'm interested in your take as to what industries or maybe specific companies are taking that voice in and amplifying it or just integrating it incredibly well. Like who's doing that well? And then I also want to know if you have a take on who's not doing it so great. Maybe travel and hospitality. I don't know, but I want to know who you think's doing it well right now. Oh man, I saw something so great just a little while ago. You know, there's going to be a pause, which you can edit out if you wish. Sure. Uh, uh, well, I, I let me try it this way. I've seen so many social media fails, but you know, sort of like brand stewards of s- social media content, not realizing the inevitable backlash, you know, to whatever scheme they tried to engineer. But then some people are just so great. Look, Wendy's. Um, okay, here's what I'm trying to think of. Maybe you can help me. Something about someone wrote something about a brand on Twitter. I would rather see them pee in a jar or something like that. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? No, unfortunately, I was not a. I was not a. All right, folks, we're gonna we're gonna come back in a second. We're gonna look this up. All right, so we just looked it up, and what what was that? <laughs> All right, so there's this brand called uh, Vita Coco. Uh, it's it's coconut water, and they had been monitoring uh, Twitter for anything keyworded coconut water. And they ran across these really vitriolic tweets from some guy who just really, really doesn't like coconut water. And he was describing it in, uh, in, in pretty harsh terms, pretty gross. And at one point, he said, uh, oh, okay. So they got in touch with this guy. And they said, well, maybe we could send you some product and you can give it a try. And he wrote, he tweeted back, I would rather drink the pee of your social media manager than take you up on your offer. And they retweeted that with a picture of the social media manager in the ladies' room of Coco Feed headquarters with a jar of sure, what sure looked like urine, yeah. right? Now, in the early days of corporate social media, that would have been unthinkable. I mean, that just never, ever, ever would have happened. People would have been fired. Heads would have rolled. But it's a it's a different world out there. It went viral. Duh. And uh, no, you know, I don't know from a uh, I don't I don't know if it ultimately did the brand good because the, the association with uh, 
with um, a millennial urine. It might be hard to shake, but <laughs> it sure did get attention for the brand and for the category. And, you know, I, it just, it, I just think it's wonderful. Yeah, I hadn't seen that one specifically. Uh, now I'm going to go look it up. Maybe that's part of the point. Uh, if you can, if you can integrate, <laughs> even people who aren't your fans, <laughs> their voice well and well enough, uh, you could do yourself a lot of good. Obviously, Wendy's is another example we just touched on. Uh, they are really good at it. One industry, I mean, so what I'm picking up is a lot of like um, fast-moving consumable goods. What, I mean, are there any industries that you think could like do better with that kind of approach? I mean, maybe maybe somebody not like an, an airline. You certainly don't want to be associating with uh, sort of like crass behavior like that. Maybe, but what do you think? Well, let me put it to you this way. I, it may not be the answer you're looking for. Uh, you better figure out how to do it because it's you know unless you have massive wasteful mass media campaigns that uh, interrupt all sorts of non-prospects on the way to interrupting a very few because mass media ain't so mass anymore or uh, in unless you do you know just total inundation of Facebook and insta advertising you uh, you're not you're not even going to reach these people. So you have to learn to do it uh, mostly organically, and uh, uh, w- which means that you have to be pretty alert. You have to know where the red lines are, but the red lines aren't nearly as uh, they're not nearly as proximate as they were in the beginning of all this. It, you know, you have to risk doing, I, I hesitate to quote Mark Zuckerberg, but, you know, he said, move fast and break things. You got to move fast and, and risk breaking things, not the whole brand, but um, you, you've got to trust your audience uh, to be, to, to understand the dynamics of what's going on in social. And, and the, the audience, especially the millennial and Gen Z audience, really, really deeply understand and they don't resent it, resent it at all when brands become part of the conversation. You've noted before that uh, companies are doing really well when they can be building these sorts of personal relationships with their fans, followers, consumers, generally concerned individuals, global citizens. Do you have any personally brands that you have developed that you think a great relationship with maybe through this recently? You know, if I could, if, if I didn't think that coconut water tastes like urine, I would probably... Uh, I'd, I'd probably get me a six pack of uh, Coco Vita. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, here's this is not the answer you will have expected, but uh, as you may or may not know, about 15 years ago or so, I launched a campaign called uh, Comcast Must Die. And it wasn't because Comcast had done almost cartoonishly evil customer service. Uh, committed egregious customer service errors uh, with me, although they had, it's because the process of trying to work through them made me realize how little voice consumers had and uh, their customers had and uh, mounted uh, an effort to uh, to give voice to those those customers with this thing called, uh, it's a pla- it was a platform, it was a website called comcastmustdie.com. 
And it was a customer service tool of last resort for people who went in, they left their account number, no other information, identifying information. They told their tales of woe and they were gothic and horrible and just kind of unbelievable. And Comcast was shamed into using that site, ComcastMustDie.com, to deal with the, you know, the worst problems of their customers, which began a process for them of drastically retooling in, uh, their customer service apparatus, gra- uh, vastly investing in it, uh, took as some, I thought, fairly obvious advice to invest their frontline employees with more authority, more discretion, uh, enabled their even their contractors uh, who were not employees to be in contact with dispatchers to have real-time information and so forth. Just some sort of no-brainer things that they hadn't done. And, you know, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investment late, later, they're not bad. I mean, they're a telecom provider, so they're not good. But the category as, as a whole, it's pretty a dismal experience for everybody. But I have, uh, I had, I was forced to become a Comcast customer again and uh, things go wrong. And then they answer the phone and fix it. I think that's, you know, a, a, a pretty good uh, way of approaching things. And as a consequence, I'm, I'm not exactly a fanboy, but I've gone from having a, uh, you know, a really poisonous, toxic relationship with the company. And by the way, they hated me and they, uh, they tried to get me fired and they canceled a million dollars, a million dollars worth of advertising in, uh, in Ad Age and other Crane Publications. It was owned by Crane Communications. It is owned by Crane Communications. Uh, so it, it was it was pretty nasty, but on the other end of it, low these 20, fifteen years later, you know I'm at least neutral, and neutral's a whole lot better than vindictive. Well, that's a it's a, a really funny story actually. It's crazy the consequences that came from that, but glad the relationship is better. And I too have seen in the media lots of of efforts from Comcast, Verizon, Telecom to be. Uh, just listening more, perhaps more actively. I want to talk about you calling things. You mentioned you've called a couple of uh, of changes in the uh, last couple of years, and I guess with with regard to the relationship era, with regard to you know how things are going. What 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 are you calling next? What's your next uh, big prediction? In 2016, I uh, I left the prediction business. With the election of 2016, I just decided I'm not good at this. <laughs> Maybe I was, but I obviously uh, have no prognostication skills anymore, and so I, I try not to make uh, I try not to make too many. You know, too, I try not to be a futurist. Um, but I mean, there's some things that are happening that we're in the, you know we're not at the beginning and we're not at the end but we're at the beginning we're, uh, of the the complete devastation of the the business not model for mass media and uh you know i would like to say that there was uh there was a, a healthy a good for you replacement in uh, social media but i think facebook is uh, been catastrophic to the society and to 
the media business as a whole. So, uh, you know, that hasn't turned out well, although it's a hell of a utility. I mean, I, I use it. Um, and, you know, I think they have behaved not just amorally, uh, but immorally. And I think it's, it's been horrific for the society. But uh, so, so here we are in a situation with a society that is quickly losing its watchdogs in mainstream media because they, they can't keep the lights on. Newspapers are dropping like flies, for example. And, you know, the alternative is, is Facebook, which has been part of just a uh, catastrophically anti-democratic, uh, highly polarizing, uh, highly poisonous corruption of, of political debate. And uh, that's obviously very bad for us. And actually, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, to force this into a segue, but it's actually kind of at the heart of my Purple Project, which I insist on talking to you about at some point. So uh, my, my prediction is things are going to get a whole lot worse before they start getting better. But for brands, the good news is that they're still squeezing a little value out of mass media, those who are judicious about it. And they are, they've become very fast learners into exploiting the dynamics of social media. Some have built whole businesses on social media and they've, they've gotten very good, uh, not great, but they've gotten much better at disintermediating mass media altogether and creating their own content or attaching themselves to content that that um, doesn't require, uh, I don't know, Disney or uh, the Walt Disney Company or uh, Gannett or Condé Nast to deliver. Uh, the content marketing status quo is not horrific. Uh, I, it's never going to replace the good old days, but Oh well. Oh well then let's 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 talk about purple then. Because oh, bless your heart. Yeah. <laughs> because uh because you you know, when we when I opened this, we talked about how you know it you're making the attempt to have it be one of the largest, most expansive campaigns in media and marketing recent history. You have just talked about some of the mediums which are some of the most expansive currently for spreading this topic. But let's just start first about uh where uh, purple started. And what what is what's the fifty thousand foot view? Hmm. Okay, it started as follows. Uh, I was minding my own business, and I got an email from my colleague at the Wharton School, uh, Professor Yoram Wind, Jerry Wind, who told me that he and uh, a colleague of his, Rebecca Winthrop from the Brookings Institution, were kind of wringing their hands, crying in their beer over the uh, the state of political discourse in this country. But not that, not so much that, but some data points, survey results, which showed wholly apart from the political chaos in which we are, you know, uh, enmeshed uh, or mired, there is the separate not unrelated, but nonetheless separate issue of people losing faith and trust in all institutions, uh, including not just government 
and the media and big business, but democracy itself. And it wasn't just a slight slide. It wasn't a trajectory downwards. It was precipitous and to the point that uh, something like, I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it's 23% or more of millennials are willing to entertain uh, an authoritarian regime or military rule as a replacement for democracy in America. Military rule. So extreme is the loss of faith and trust, especially in the younger generations. Um, and so we, you know, they wondered, you know, why is this happening and what can we do about it? Well, the why is pretty easy to understand. Uh, the aforementioned um, uh, collapse of the media business and the, and the, the news industry is, and the fragmentation of information has had an effect. The uh, the tra uh, the um, ascension of Facebook and the filter bubbles that came with it were all locked in our own tiny little um, spheres of political worldview and and in which we never engage with any outside ideas. That's a problem, and the just political polarization in general is a huge problem. Uh, but another thing is just plain lack of civics education. When I was a kid, uh, we were taught about th three branches of government and separation of powers and rule of law and the Bill of Rights and one man, one vote and the trial by jury and um, all of these things that we were told made America an exceptional place, that made this the shining city on the hill that was the envy of the world. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of indoctrination there. And they may have glossed over certain, you know, uh, uh, unfortunate episodes of American history, like, you know, slavery and the Trail of Tears and later Me Lai and Vietnam and, you know, you name it. There are a lot of sins in our history, a lot of failures of democracy, but... Uh, Putting that aside for a moment, we learned about what made us special, and we loved it, and we pledged allegiance to it, and maybe it was rote, but it seeped in. Well, civics, civics education um, has dramatically diminished, partly because of, of STEM, the emphasis on STEM. Thank you, President Obama. And... Um, and partly because of endless, endless testing. Thank you, President George W. Bush. And the consequence is, social, consequence is that social studies in general and civics in particular has been squeezed out of the curriculum. So we, we don't have access to uh, the, the impact of, of uh, basically neutral media has diminished. The lack of education about our country and its institutions and its core values is missing. And the political situation has gotten rough and people have just lost faith. So all of which is to say that we thought that the way to approach this problem is to create an awareness campaign for freaking democracy. 
to remind people of what it is, to remind people of how it actually works, not to demythologize, not to say how, you know, what some shrill voice in your ear is constantly telling you is going on with, you know, deep states or whatever, um, fat, bloated bureaucracy, what, you know, whatever, uh, enemy of the people press, but to show how it actually works. And, um, and uh, to reaffirm our commitment to what really, truly makes us special. That's all. And, and, but the only way to do that in a fragmented media environment, hyper-fragmented, is to be everywhere. If it were 1964, no problem. Three TV networks, three news magazines, a few thousand newspapers. You've done it. You've covered the whole country. And now there's literally millions of media options. So the Purple Project is an attempt to get content, completely apolitical content, without any ideology, without any partisanship, without even any policy in it, to once again flesh out the the history of democracy, the heroes of democracy, the state, the, the stakes of democracy. Not a bad idea to compare what we have to Turkey or uh, the Philippines or Venezuela or Nicaragua or Russia or Poland or North Korea. You know, I feel confident saying that we have a significantly better society than North Korea. Um, so you can't, won't be able to avoid it. We will be as many of those millions of fragmented places as we can and to so, so that we can deliver this this brand. I mean, we're creating a brand called Purple that is a proxy for everything about our democracy that we should appreciate, that we should understand and appreciate. <laughs> of course, not that, you know, I know what I'm doing. I Even though I've been a critic in these fields, I've never been a practitioner. Um, it's very, very easy to find fault. It's very, very difficult to actually make things happen. And But we are arm in arm building a very significant coalition. It's already significant. We are bringing in media partners. We are, uh, we are going to accept a, a limited number of brand sponsors who will be, you know, proud, uh, proud sponsors of the purple project for democracy. Uh, we hope to t benefit from their reach you know, in a world where ma mass media is getting uh, significantly less mass all the time, the reach of, of certain brands it is far greater than anything we could get by, yeah, I don't know, primetime on CBS. So um, we, we covet brand sp uh, sponsorship because just as the purple vision imbues a brand with the best the best values of democracy uh, we get borrowed interest from the brand's relationship with people that we began this conversation talking about so um it's a it's a beautifully symbiotic thing and plus their licensing fee will fund the next phase of this which is a just a gigantic platform for creating and f cultivating civic engagement 
uh, from from the local level on. It's a uh, it's a pretty well thought out scheme, <laughs> uh, if I do say so myself. But we're not going to talk about that much now. Uh, but our goal ultimately at the end of this is literally to change the norms for civic behavior in this country. Um, in the way the friends don't let friends literally change the norms of going out and drinking. Friends don't let friends drive drunk, and if we have any say in it, friends won't let friends opt out. That's the ultimate goal. But first, 30 Days of Purple, a campaign where we will be awash in all of the reasons that we should be holding these institutions and these values dear. I mean, you know, since you asked. Well, I appreciate the, the, the extensive explanation there and certainly interested as to how folks like me, everyday people can can get involved with Purple once once it ultimately launches. Um, I can I can see a world in which a lot of folks who have very differing opinions about who to support through the process of democracy may get in the way of the message. Do you perceive any risk there? Sure, there's risk. I mean... Uh, first, we're going to get criticized from all quarters because we're all going to be we're going to be accused by various parties of being, uh, you know, like a uh, a sock puppet for their opponents. Right? Mm -hmm. It's already happening, mostly from the left. People are, you know, accusing us of being apologists for people whose views they don't like. And um, you know, okay, that that's going to happen. It's a democracy, and we had a on the subject of branding. We had a very big argument among the organizers about whether even to call this purple. Now, I loved it because it's alliterative uh, with project. It's alliterative with purpose, which is, a, you know, a big watchword in, in uh, marketing these days because it's graphically very fetching. And, of course, because it is the synthesis of red and blue, which means it's about not just about one political party or ideology, right? So, but when we chose purple, uh, we did, it did it understanding, well, people would think that this is some sort of uh, elect electoral equilibrium we're seeking. You know, we're trying to turn Texas purple instead of red or something like that. No, we're not doing that. But I must say, Adam, no matter how many times we tell people that no participant in Purple, no media partner, is allowed to create any content under the Purple banner that is partisan, political, or policy-based. It's, you know, people still are thinking it's political. It's political. Except it's the opposite of political. It's about our way of life. It's not about the partisan fray. Um, but we took that risk because I just think Purple is a, you know, just a magnificent metaphor for a society that can function uh, with all colors of the political spectrum involved, right? So we'll see. But, you know, all I can say is, uh, in spite of my own personal political views, uh, which, um, we, which are not, I'm not otherwise circumspect about, uh, I'm very public man, and they're well known. Uh, this has nothing to do with, with my politics either. There is the political problem that we face, and there is the faith 
problem that we face, and the faith that we face, and I mean faith in our system, in our system of government and in our way of life. And that has nothing to do with who I'm going to vote for or against. Well, I look forward to seeing everything that comes from that. Um, I'm following it very closely to see just how expansive it gets. Uh, I think it's a good message, again, regardless of who you support or don't in this point in time, to get involved. And I personally know uh, of many uh, brands and others who who are also focused on that, getting involved, period. Um, I want to close by asking something I ask all my... Oh, go ahead. No, I know the question. Obviously, you want to close by saying, Bob, what's the URL for the Purple Project? Oh, right. No, that's right. I'm very happy to answer that question. You you have uh, rested it out of me. It's purple4dmocracy.org. And that's if you go there, you will find the whole purple story. You will see our coalition. You will see our plans for the future. You will see our plans for November. Uh, and, the, and the graphics are just just A+. Purple4democracy.org, folks, uh, make sure while you're listening to this, go on your phone, go on your computer, check it out, see what this mission is all about, and eventually see how you can get involved yourself. All right, that was, that was, a, good, that was a good question. Here, here's the other one that was just in my back pocket, the question that I wanted to close with. Not that I had thought of this before, but just... Typically, with all the guests I have on Authentic Influence, I ask them if I am somebody who is looking to further, and in this case, we'll say uh, a purpose or a mission or a project as opposed to a brand, something which is, it doesn't matter whether the end uh, goal is consumption or a cause. For folks who are looking to get more into that, uh, you know, integrated conversation with people just like me, from the most grassroots levels to build trust in that way, to build personal relationships where would you give advice to somebody to just get them started on that track? Like what mentality should they be in to, to start down that road? Uh, when I first started writing on this subject, I, I just called it listenomics. Uh, and, it, you know, it's, it's making a discipline out of paying attention to what is being said out there about you, uh, said, about the, said out there about the culture and the society uh, that you should know about. And what is said about the areas of human um, of human activity that your brand has in common with your audience. So first of all, knowing what is being said. The second step is, to whatever degree you can, to try to be part of the conversation. Not be by butting in, but by organically uh, adding to it when when um, you have standing, and uh, and and from there, there you know are opportunities for real what you people call activations <laughs> that uh, that try to exploit the dynamics and exploit the re- very relationships that you've cultivated. Uh, you know, I would start first by cultivating the relationships, and not instantly try to you know cash in on those relationships with, you know, some sort of activation that doesn't look sincere or is, you know, manipulative in some way. Um, You know, when you go to your new neighbor in town and you go to the barbecue, you want to meet everybody, but it's probably a bad move move to start handing out business cards. And so I, I would caution against that impulse. And in time, 
you know, just like in life, relationships build, trust builds, and uh, and trust trust yields opportunities. So that now I'm going to give you a better answer than you really wanted. Uh, you do this podcast for Vavum. Vavum learned about. Uh, wait, wait. I learned about Vavoom, and I said to Vavoom, Vavoom, I said, I need to, for the purposes of the Purple Project for Democracy, uh, cultivate a, a lot of people with who I'm, you know, ordinarily uh, not in touch. And, uh, I, you know, I have a lot of ways to do that. One is through organic content created by professionals. Another is by advertising messages with a media buy behind them. Uh, another way is through uh, social aimed at the long tail of social. Another is to try to find a whole mess of key influencers to get behind purple. And I'm doing all of that, but um, I can't help but notice <laughs> that you have a... Uh, an application which uh, allows me to marshal all of these forces uh, toward the end of creating uh, user-generated content, which will fly around social media uh, and have all the authenticity that all of these individual creators uh, generate. And I would love for this to be a part of the Purple Project because it's kind of just what the doctor ordered. And Vivoom said, okay. And uh, and has come on as uh, a partner in this enterprise. And uh, if will you, will you um, interview me again in like 60, I'm sorry, in, uh, in January so I can tell you if this thing worked or whether you guys are, you know. Total garbage? Total garbage. Yeah, sure. Get a little retrospective going on. Beginning of 2020. Stay stay tuned for it, listeners. We'll do a bonus episode. And I, you know, uh, God willing, uh, we'll be able to doing doing that from uh, what will remain the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds good. Um, looking forward to that. And uh, thank you for that advice. Um, folks, it's been a pleasure to, to present this conversation to you. And, and hopefully you do go and check out Purple. I, I would encourage you to heavily. Uh, and, and learn how to get involved there. And for that and for all the other uh, advice and, and fun insight you've given us today, Bob, thanks very much for joining the show. Thank you, Adam. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much once again to Bob Garfield for joining us on Authentic Influence and for recording the show with me live here in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Again, that's purplefordemocracy.org. Go and check that out and see how you can get involved. It's going to be quite the initiative come later this year. If you like this particular type of content, I really want you to let me know this time around. So either leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen, or you can contact me directly. I'm on LinkedIn, Adam Connor, C-O-N-N-E-R. And you can also write us a note on podcast.thevoom.co. And I say it specifically this time around 
because this is a type of conversation I want to have a little bit more often to bring in experts in our field, to bring in particularly remarkable voices. And while they might not hold the title of CMO, they bring in such a breadth of knowledge and experience that it's especially worth hearing their perspective. So I do want to give you the opportunity to let me know. Do you want to hear more of this? Do you not want to hear so much? Should I be asking different questions? Who else should I bring on? Any of that feedback is a great contribution to me. I'll be back again in two weeks' time with another great story of how a top global brand is becoming more authentic in its storytelling and strategy today. And until then, and like always, for Authentic Influence, I've been your host, Adam Connor, and you'll hear from me again next time.